All right, let's pray. Lord, thanks for your goodness. Thanks for your love and your grace and your mercy. And Lord, help us now just hear from you, that you would choose to give us your word, lamp into our feet and light into our path, our low beams and our high beams, that we would see where you would have us, that you, we would know your direction for us, that you would know the concerns on our hearts, and that you, by your Spirit, through your Word, could guide us into all truth. Lord, it's amazing. It's amazing that you do all this for us. And so we just receive it today, and we ask that you bless your Word to us. And so have your way with us now, please. In Jesus' name, amen. Turn, if you would, to Ezekiel chapter 36. Marching through, chapter by chapter, find ourselves in Ezekiel 36. As I say this, I'm thinking of it now, just I'm thinking about it. If, if you're uh, new or new-ish since we started Ezekiel, what we usually do is we go through an Old Testament book and then we'll go through a New Testament uh, piece. And so we kind of go through Old Testament and New Testament. And so if you feel like, boy, it's a lot of history, uh, We'll be in First Timothy after we get done with Ezekiel. So, um, anyway, that's all that. We find ourselves um, messing with the microphone. Um, sorry. We find ourselves in Ezekiel. As a matter of review, Ezekiel is written to a group of Jewish captives in Babylon. And uh, they've been conquered, uh, sort of conquered twice. The first time was in 605 B.C. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were carried captive then, as well as some others. And then again in 597 B.C., keep in mind B.C., we count backwards. Um, 597 B.C., the Babylonians came again and carried off a bunch of captives. Uh, Ezekiel was one of those. And then finally, 11 years later in 586 B.C. will be the final conquest of Jerusalem and the nation of Judah by Babylon. And so we're in that time period between 597 and 586. And it's an interesting time period because we have uh, Jeremiah back in Jerusalem preaching to those folks. And we have Ezekiel in Babylon preaching to these folks. And... The idea is, it's a very unstable time, right? Babylon's come twice. Uh, Ezekiel and Jeremiah are both telling us that Babylon is going to come a third and final time, which is unsettling, to say the least. And, um, and all of that is, and, and to make matters worse, both Jeremiah and Ezekiel say, it's your fault. <laughs> it's because a consequence of your sin that God is bringing judgment and punishment. And so that's kind of the, the setting. And we've, if you've been with us for these chapters, you know that it's, there's a lot of it. And uh, specifically for the first 24 chapters of the book of Ezekiel, it's all about, hey, yes, Babylon is in fact going to come in 586. They are going to bring final destruction. It's going to be horrible and you need to repent. Really, it's, it's a picture of God's grace. It sounds like it's all mean judgment, but it's actually, I mean, what's a warning? A warning is a picture of grace, 
And so it's an opportunity to repent. And so that's what all of the first 24 chapters of Ezekiel is about. And then from 25 to 34, um, we kind of get some, uh, a lot of judgment about the surrounding nations, a couple of um, uh, reprieves specifically related to Ezekiel as the watchman. You may recall we talked about that. And then a warning to some irresponsible shepherds. We talked about that as Christians, we're all what? Ministers. Every one of us, not just any select few. We're all ministers. And so as a result, we're all both sheep and shepherds, which kind of makes that chapter, I think, um, particularly relevant for all of us. And then in chapter 35, we talked about a couple weeks ago, uh, was a specific judgment against Edom, uh, who were the descendants of Esau. And that sets the stage for chapter 36 onward. Here's why I go into all that. Chapter 36 marks a turning point, okay? We've, we now move from judgment being pronounced and judgment to the other nations now to future blessing, okay? Because God's not all about just judgment. God wants to bless His people, right? I think of, you know, if you remodel an old house without old houses in this town, right? First, you've got to tear out the moldy drywall, Right? And then you put up the new, right? So today we start putting up new drywall. Fair enough? And so it's a, it's a beautiful picture. And it's a beautiful picture of God's, uh, the heart of God. Um, after honestly reading a lot of um, judgment prophecy. And so we talk about now a new chapter, future blessings prophesied for Israel. Um, Interestingly, in contrast to the recent, uh, to the last chapter, prophecy against Edom. And so there's kind of a, kind of a contrast that we see here. And then um, he moves forward into yet future time as well. In Jeremiah chapter 21, 29, Jeremiah wrote a letter to these captives. Okay. And it was a letter of future um, encouragement, future blessing being promised, and specifically, I won't go back and read it, but specifically, Jeremiah told these captives, and you may recall when we went through Jeremiah, that's the chapter that says, you know, the, the verse that is on all of our bathroom walls, you know, I will give you a blessing and a future and a hope, right? It's on every Christian bookstore before you get to the Bibles, which are way in the back. But anyway, that's another story. I just dated myself. Because nobody has a Christian bookstore anymore, right? <laughs> it's a mouse. But anyway, this happens every now and then. Jeremiah chapter 29. Jeremiah is writing to these captives in Ezekiel, and he says, you know what? Just settle down and build houses. Settle there in Babylon, because you're going to be there for 70 years. And specifically, after 70 years, I'm going to bring you back to Jerusalem to resettle the land of Judah. Now, as a matter of, seems like maybe just a passing comment, but it's a, it's a huge, uh, frankly, theological anchor that we have. How do we interpret prophecy whenever possible? Literally or allegorically? Literally, right? Jesus was born of a virgin. What does that mean? It means a virgin. Jesus was born in Bethlehem. What does that mean? Bethlehem. Babylon is going to, Babylon is going to conquer what does that mean? Babylon's going to conquer. You're going to come back in 70, after 70 years? What does that mean? 70 years. And specifically, 
as we know, the Bible is the best interpreter of the Bible, right? And we know that uh, good interpreters of Scripture are in Scripture, right? We know that perhaps the best interpreter of Scripture is Daniel. And we know that Daniel in chapter 9, as he is reading chapter 9, he says, you know, I was reading Jeremiah, and I, I noticed that as I was reading Jeremiah, it said that after 70 years, our people are going to go back. And so specifically, Daniel chapter 9, he starts to pray because he knows that that 70, he's been in Babylon now for about 70 years, and he knows that time is approaching. So he's, Daniel interprets prophecy very literally, so why don't we? All right? So that's sort of a, that's sort of an anchor point that we have. Jeremiah said you're going to come back after 70 years. And so we start to see, as we read these future blessing verses, really for the rest of Ezekiel, we now have a little bit of a job to where to place those. And the reason I go into that whole thing about the literal interpretation is wherever possible, we're going to interpret this as literal as possible. And I'll give us hopefully a little more ammo to do that today, but also a little more, mm, that's not yet fulfilled as literally as it's written. Okay, does that make sense? And so, Picture you're in Babylon, you're a, you're a Jewish captive, and uh, you're hanging out there. You need some encouragement, right? And so you're going to read, you're going to hear stuff like uh, Jeremiah chapter 31. We'll just read briefly. Jeremiah chapter 31, starting in verse 31. I read this because uh, this, is, this is recorded, this is actually referenced twice in the book of Hebrews, um, part of what Drew went over on Wednesday night. Jeremiah 31, starting in 31. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord. Again, this is written to captives, uh, to, to the Jewish people during a time of their captivity, but not yet their final conquest by Babylon. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with house of Judah. Not just Judah, but Judah and Israel. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant, which they broke... Though I was a husband to them, says the Lord, but this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. Now, those verses are quoted in Hebrews chapter 8, verses 8 through 12, and Hebrews chapter 10, verse 16 to 17, pointing to the new covenant. The new covenant is going to come through who? Jesus. Jesus is a fully man, fully God, but his fully man component is of Jewish heritage. Fair enough? And so the, the new covenant, the future blessing, all that that would be meant to encourage these people, these captives, is going to come through Jesus, through the Jewish people. And so now you start to see encouragement to these people coming from the mouth of Ezekiel. So chapter 36 begins to describe this. So keep this in mind. I know I'm belaboring this. Keep this in mind. You're a captive in we'll say somewhere between 597 and 586 B.C. You're hanging out there in Babylon. You'd like to have a little encouragement, right? Your people are about to be destroyed. You've been told this by, by 
Jeremiah and Ezekiel, and you need some encouragement. Jeremiah says, well, one piece of encouragement is after, after you're there for 70 years, God's going to bring the people back. Okay? That's a piece. And yet there's future promises that aren't fully fulfilled at that 70-year regathering. So what we see is a future expectation that Ezekiel is going to build in these people. Now, we have the privilege of looking back somewhat, and yet we're just farther down the timeline, right? And so I'm doing it for your benefit, left to right, because that's how you read. Do you notice this? I make so much sacrifice as to, as to reciprocate my brain, okay? So you're in, let's say, 597 B.C. Future is 70 years later, right? Your people are going to come back. Well, some stuff is restored, but not, not to the full extent that we're going to read about even in these chapters, in this chapter today. Okay, so fast forward a little bit as we, you know, we can kind of look back. Well, there's another big event that happened, you know, the time of Christ, right? Jesus was born, right? And now we kind of, that helps us kind of understand a little bit why the disciples had all this political hang-up, right? See, the disciples confused their politics with their religion. We would never do that, but they did. They, and they kept saying questions like, Lord, are, now, are you now going to restore the nation of Israel, right? They would say stuff like that. Are you going to thump the Romans now? And is now the time, like all the stuff Ezekiel talked about, is now the time? And Jesus basically said no, okay? So that was the time point, right? 70 AD is a time point, right? The Romans came in and they destroyed Jerusalem once again, just like Babylon did probably a little more decisively, right? Because that destruction basically terminated the nation of Israel as, as they knew it, right? Until when? 1948. That's another time point. I'm all the way down here now. That's another time point, okay? Well, there's some stuff we're going to read about today that sounds like 1948. And yet, even that is not yet completed, okay? And so there's going to be another time point if you'll indulge me for a second, I believe there's a, there's a rapture of the church. There's a tribulation that goes on for seven, seven years. Why do I say it goes on for seven years? Because that's what I take it literally. Uh, so it's going to go on for seven years. During that time, there's going to be a great revival amongst the Jewish people. There's going to be 144,000 Jewish evangelists, all 12,000 from each tribe, right? Specified in the book of Revelation. It's going to be a great revival. Among, it's going to be Great tribulation like has never been seen on planet earth ever, but yet in that there's going to be a great revival amongst the Jewish people. And then at the end of that, Jesus comes down, sets foot on the Mount of Olives, sets up a millennial kingdom that will go on for, anybody want to guess how long a millennial kingdom goes on? If it was a centennial uh, kingdom, it would go on for what? 100 years. We're going to call it a millennial kingdom, right? We're bringing in all the elements of educational opportunity here. So we're going to call it a millennial kingdom, and it's going to go on for a thousand years. During that time, Satan is bound, and Jesus reigns. Now just pause there for a second. Can we describe really with any accuracy, with our understanding of life and death and heaven and earth and all of that, can we really describe what this world would be like if Jesus reigned 
in a basically a worldwide government where Jesus is on the throne and Satan is bound? How would you describe that? We wouldn't know really how to describe it. And so we see some references of it. Uh, the, best, the best description I can give of it is sort of like the Garden of Eden before the fall. And Isaiah gives a lot of description about that time period, and that's kind of what it sounds like. Anyway, at the end of that thousand-year period, Satan is released for a brief time. There's going to be another deception uh, of some folks uh, on earth. And that, that millennial kingdom, by the way, that's not heaven, right? That's not eternity. That's just a millennial kingdom where Jesus reigns and Satan is bound. At the end of that, Satan is released for a brief while, and then there's final judgment, heaven and hell, and we get to be with the Lord eternally, right? That's God's timeline. And we can start that timeline, in a sense, from, you know, the Babylonian captivity all the way to final judgment. But those are the pieces. And so if you're this guy, if you're some Jewish citizen, John Doe, I was trying to think of a good Jewish name, but we'll say John Doe is a good Jewish name. If you're John Doe in Babylon in 597 BC, you're looking at future events. And we know, as we can kind of look back and kind of look forward, that there are some, there's some markers. There's 70 years later, there's the time of Christ, there's 70 AD, there's 1948, there's the tribulation, and there's millennial kingdom, right? And so as you read forward, and again, Ezekiel's writing to this guy, John Doe, in 597 BC, and so it looks future, but we don't know, he, he wouldn't know exactly where it fits. And so we can have some clues based on all of that where it fits. Is that fair? Did I belabor that enough, or you want me to go over that again? No. <sighs> Chapter 36, verse 1. And you, son of man, prophesy to the mountains of Israel and say, to them, say, O mountains of Israel, hear the word of the Lord. And so he starts by speaking to the mountains. Now, obviously, God is interested in people. God is concerned with people. But it's interesting that God's real estate so often goes along with God's people. You've been placed in this community by God for a reason, right? We talked, when we talked about the judgment on, uh, on Esau, uh, he said, Son of man, set your face against Mount Seir. That was the area that the Edomites, the descendants of Esau, settled, right? And so God in some sort of, not, you know, not necessarily mystical or anything like that, but God, God connects sort of his people with where they're at. And God has us uh, sovereignly where he has us. And so uh, it's really a beautiful picture of the place and the people that go with that place. Verse 2, thus says the Lord God, because the enemy has said of you, aha, the ancient heights have become our possession. I'm going to pause there. Because... The enemy, is that singular or plural? Singular. I think that's not an accident. Because the enemy, who's the enemy of the nation of Israel? Starts with an S, rhymes with Phaeton. All right? Satan is the enemy of the Jewish people. Now you think, how can you have a, a single enemy of a nation, right? Think about this. The real enemies of God, you know, Ephesians tells us we don't wrestle with flesh and blood, right? right? 
But think about the history of the Jewish people. If you had no, I was reading, I'm reading a book about marriage. I'm going to maybe spring it on you at some point. But anyway, uh, one, of this, uh, one of the little side notes is the guy says, um, somebody asked him, what's your strongest um, argument for the existence of God? And he said, the Jewish people. The Jewish people. You think about this. You got a nation of people who have Pharaoh in their history. Pharaoh tried to annihilate them. Most powerful man in the world, probably on an earthly perspective, should have been able to pull that off. Right? You say, well, that was dumb luck. Then a few centuries later, you got a guy named Haman, second most powerful man in the world, and the most powerful man in the world, probably in the known world, the most powerful man in the world was a, was a puppet king with no spine, and you're the second only to that puppet king with no spine, fully able to pull his puppet strings. And you come up with a plan to annihilate the Jewish people. Right? Is that a coincidence? Or is that satanic? Yeah. A few centuries later, Jesus is born. Some wise men come from the east and say, King of the Jews is here. We think he's probably a little less than two years old. King Herod says, well, let's just kill every two-year-old baby or two-year-old and young, younger male. Is that a coincidence? No. The Roman Empire, the Romans came in 70 A.D., and decimated the Jewish nation and succeeded in doing that from 70 AD with a destruction that would last until 1948. They ceased to exist as a nation. And then all of a sudden in 1948, they, they return, same language, same culture, same religion, to begin this regathering. Is there any other nation in all of history that's ever done anything like that? Remotely close to that? No. If you, well, around that same time period, we have Adolf Hitler. What did he try to do? Annihilate the Jewish people. There's one enemy of the Jews. Satan. Why does he want to destroy the Jews? What did I read in Jeremiah? Because God's Messiah is going to come from the Jewish people. Right? So the Jewish people, thus says the Lord God, because the enemy has said of you, so make no mistake about it. And I say this, this, you know, again, for our modern cultural narrative. Can I just tell you this in 2022? Beware right now. Just, just have a little antenna. Can I tell you this? Be a, have a little antenna, or maybe a big one, for hatred for the Jewish people in our modern day. Just, just heads up. Hatred for the Jewish people in our modern day. We're going to enter a time, maybe in the near future, maybe now, where it won't be socially cool to stand up to defend the Jewish people. It'll actually, it'll actually require some, a courageous stand to stand up for the Jewish people. Genesis chapter 12, verse 3. God told Abraham where the Jewish people were going to start. They're going to start with, with Abraham. God told Abraham, I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. By the way, what happened to Pharaoh? He died. He died. What happened to Hitler? He died. What happened to Herod? 
He died. What happened to Haman? He died. And in the pages of history, we have some pretty, uh, frankly, glorious descriptions of their demise, right? We read about Pharaoh's wheels falling off his chariot. That's kind of weird. And, in, and we get to read that, he, that all of his army kind of washed up on shore. That's a little graphic, right? We get to read the story, frankly, if we all have like any kind of degree of justice in our bones at all. We love to read the story of Esther, right? And Haman hangs on the gallows that he made for Mordecai. We love that story, right? Kind of appeals to our dark side, but we love that story, right? We, you know, all these guys have pretty dramatic demises because God said, I will bless that to Abraham. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse him who curses you. God's promises are not temporary. God's promises are not temporary. And even as we see these verses carried out, we'll notice, we'll take note that God's promises are not necessary. Therefore prophesy and say, thus says the Lord God, because they made you desolate and swallowed you up on every side so that you became the possession of the rest of the nations, and you are taken up by the lips of talkers and, slandering, and slandered by the people. Therefore, O mountains of Israel, hear the word of the Lord God. Thus says the Lord God of the mountains, the hills, the rivers, the valleys, the desolate wastes, and the cities that have been forsaken, which became plunder and mockery to the rest of the nations all around. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, surely I have spoken in my burning jealousy against the rest of the nations and against all Edom, who we contrasted last week or two weeks ago, who gave my land to themselves as a possession with wholehearted joy and spiteful minds in order to plunder its open country. And so, keep in mind, written to John Doe, the Jewish captive in Babylon, the land has yet to be completely destroyed, but he knows it's coming because God told him that it was going to. But notice the crime of the people that came and brought destruction to the nation of Judah. Number one, they gave God's land to themselves, even though God used them as instruments of punishment, right? God's going to use the Babylonians as instruments of punishment, but they took it a little bit too far. These surrounding nations, they took it a little bit too far. They enjoyed the demise of, of the nation of Judah. And they took, he says, they gave, who gave my land to themselves as a possession. Can I tell us this? Can I just give us another little heads up? Don't take what belongs to God. Don't take what belongs to God. Jesus said, give to Caesar what is Caesar and give to God what is God's. Now, he was, you know, deflecting their trap, right? Because God owns everything, right? But there's a, there's a specific thing. I think we need to be super careful not to take what belongs to God. I see amongst Christians, honestly, a little too often, trying to take the glory that belongs to God. Well, God did something. God did something amazing. Maybe God did that something amazing by means of a human instrument. Maybe by one of us. And we might kind of receive the praise of men a little bit, right? Don't take what belongs to God. Be very careful. They gave God's land to themselves. And then also, they took the land with, quote, wholehearted joy and spiteful minds in order to plunder its open country. God didn't appreciate that. And so God's going to bring judgment on those nations. Therefore prophesy, verse 6, concerning the land of Israel 
and say to the mountains, the hills, the rivers, and the valleys, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I have spoken in my jealousy and my fury, because you have borne the shame of the nations. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, I have raised my hand in an oath, that surely the nations that are around you shall bear their own shame. But you, O mountains of Israel, you shall shoot forth your branches and yield your fruit to my people Israel, for they are about to come. For indeed, I am for you, and I will turn to you, and you shall be tilled and sown. So, God's promises now turn, from, turn the tide from the cursing of the neighboring nations to the blessing of God's people. And he says, and he's blessing the land and the people. Interestingly, he said, O mountains of Israel, you shall shoot forth your branches and yield your fruit to my people, Israel. For they're about to come. For indeed I am for you, and I will turn to you, and you shall be tilled and sown. Again, we might ask the question, does this come after 70 years of captivity? Does this come during the time of Christ? Does this come in 1948 or beyond? When uh, Mark Twain visited the nation of Israel in 1867, It's been said that he described the land as, quote, a desolate country whose soil is rich enough but is given over wholly to weeds, a silent, mournful expanse, a desolation. Mark Twain was a cynic, right? And uh, went to Israel, went to the land of Israel, and, you know, according to the reports, basically mocked it. Like, really, this is the land of milk and honey, right? And, it's, and his words are recorded, basically how he mocked the, the barrenness of the nation of Israel, right? David Guzik says this in terms of modern-day Israel, right? According to Israeli government statistics and reports, though only 20% of Israel's land is suitable for farming since the establishment of the modern state of Israel in 1948, They have more than tripled the amount of land used for farming, and production has increased 16 times. What used to be an agricultural wasteland is now a model for the world, and Israel produces 95% of its own food requirements and has a large agricultural export industry. Huh. It's curious, right? So I take that, again, After 70 years, eh, maybe not quite, right? All the way up to 1867, mm, not quite. I'm not seeing it, right? Since 1948 and now, right? What do we see? But you, O mountains of Israel, shall shoot forth your branches and yield your fruit to my people, Israel, for they're about to come. For indeed, I am for you, and I will turn to you, and you shall be tilled and sown. Now, you know, you might say fruit, you know, fruit of the Spirit. It's not always literal, right? Okay, I'll give you that. But then he adds in there tilled and sown, right? I mean, we wouldn't make a doctrine out of it necessarily. But is it curious that the vegetation of the land of Israel right now is so much more prolific than it was in 1867? That's curious. That's curious. Verse 10. I will multiply men upon you, all the house of Israel, all of it. And the cities shall be inhabited and the ruins rebuilt. 
I will multiply upon you man and beast, and they shall increase and bear young. I will make you inhabited as in former times, and do better for you than at your beginnings. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. Yes, I will cause men to walk on you, my people Israel. They shall take possession of you, and you shall be their inheritance. No more shall you bereave them of children. So again, this would be great encouragement to John Doe in 597 B.C. And this is partially fulfilled 70 years later when they resettle. And it's a little more so fulfilled in 1948. And it'll be a little more so fulfilled even into the millennial kingdom. And so that's how we read this. But interestingly, again, God loves to encourage his children, right? And even to that, that person that's sitting there in Babylon, and you've got to keep in mind, you've got to get your head around the, the, the Jewish mindset. The Jewish mindset is very, we are the nation of Israel minded. We are the children of God minded. How could the Gentile nations do this to us minded? Very, uh, very patriotic in a, in, a, in, a, in a cultural and religious sense, even though they forsook the Lord. And God tells them, it's going to be better than at your beginnings. And they would all know their history, right? They grew up knowing their history. They knew when, jo- when Joshua and, and the army came in and basically conquered all the land and just took it. I mean, they had free pickings of it, basically. They would know the reign of the King David. They would know the splendor of Solomon's kingdom. And God tells them, I'm going to bless you beyond what you were blessed in, the, in your beginnings. That would be very encouraging to his people. Is that going to play out? It's, has it played out yet? Well, is, since 1948, does it look like the reign of Solomon? Mm, probably not, right? But will it one day? You bet it will. You bet it will. Verse 13, thus says the Lord God, because they say to you, you devour men and bereave your nation of children, therefore you shall devour men no more, nor bereave your nation anymore, says the Lord God, nor will I let you hear the taunts of the nations anymore, nor bear the reproach of the peoples anymore, nor shall you cause your nation to stumble anymore, says the Lord God. So 70 years later, they're going to go back, right? Settle the land. We've read Ezra and Nehemiah, right? Were there people there that taunted them? Oh, yeah. Right? So that was kind of, yeah, I'm going to bring you back, but those people taunted him. Right? Well, either God's word is not correct, or that's a partial fulfillment. Right? We know that God's word is correct. Right? 1948 to the present time. Do the people taunt the nation of Israel? Yeah. In the millennial kingdom, will the people taunt the nation of Israel? Not the ones that are living, <laughs> right? Not the ones that remain alive. That'll be a beautiful thing. Nor will, you, I, nor will I let you hear the taunts of the nations anymore, nor bear the reproach of the peoples anymore. That'll be beautiful. Verse 16, moreover, the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, when the house of Israel dwelt in their own land, they defiled it by their own ways and deeds. To me, their way was like the uncleanness of a woman in her customary impurity. Therefore, I poured out my fury on them for the blood they had shed on the land and for their idols which they had, with which they had defiled it. So I scattered them among the nations and they were dispersed throughout the countries. I judged them according to their ways and their deeds. And when they came to the nations, wherever they went, they profaned my holy name. 
when they said of them, these are, my, these are the people of the Lord, and yet they have gone out of the land. But I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations wherever they went. So he transitions here a little bit. And he's going to, you know, he's kind of in these first 15 verses, he says, you know, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bless you guys. And now he says from 16 to, to 21 here, he says, you know, what happened was you profane my name. You rejected me. You worshiped idols. We've talked about that throughout the book of really Jeremiah and, and Ezekiel. You profane my name. And furthermore, when you went to these nations where I scattered you, recall the northern kingdom got scattered off by the Assyrians. When you went to these other places, you still profane my name at those places. And you know what? My holy name, I had concern for my holy name, verse 21. I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations where they went. So God punished the people for their idolatry. They profaned his name. They took that same profanity to the surrounding nations. And God is yet going to restore his own reputation. Here's a sobering thought. God is God. God is in control. God doesn't need our help, right? But yet, somehow, even in the context of God's sovereignty, which we're going to read more about in a minute, even in the context of that, I can, I can validate, legitimize, or sort of not invalidate. I can legitimize his name. Does that make sense? Or I can discredit him. That's probably a better word. I'm not going to take away any of his glory if I'm a bozo, right? But if I'm a bozo and I call myself Christian, then that affects his reputation amongst other people. Does that make sense? It's interesting. You read, uh, I think in Corinthians, Paul says, you know, I never told you to stay out of the world, right? Because then you'd have to find a new planet, right? I never told you to stay away from sinners. You'd have to find a new place to live. But I did tell you this. Anyone who calls himself a Christian and lives like a pagan don't have anything to do with him. Paul says, don't even eat with him. Right? Why is that? Because we represent the Lord. And we should take that seriously. He says, I had concern for my holy name which the house of Israel had profaned. God can take care of himself. God can defend himself. But I don't want to make it harder for him. Right? Verse 22. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, I do not do this for your sake, O house of Israel, but for my holy name's sake, which you have profaned among the nations wherever you went. And I will sanctify my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst. And the nations shall know that I am the Lord, says the Lord God, when I am hallowed in you before their eyes. So God says, I'm going to take care of, I'm going to take care of myself. I'm going to fix my own reputation, regardless of what you guys do. But I can handle that. For I will, verse 24, I will take you among the nations, gather you out of all countries, and bring you into your own land. 
Notice this, nations, plural, right? God says, I'm going to take you out of all nations, plural, and bring you into the land. Okay, now, history review, right? After the, nation, after the reign of Solomon, King Rehoboam, his son, right? There was a split in the nation. In the nation. There's the northern kingdom of Israel, southern kingdom of Judah. Northern kingdom got carried off in, I think, 722 B.C. by the Assyrians, right? This nation of Judah is the one we've been talking about ever since then. They're the ones that are captive in Babylon, right? Judah captured by Babylon. One country, Babylon. Jeremiah says after 70 years, they're going to come back from that one country, Babylon. God here says, I will take you and gather you from out of all countries and bring you into your own land. So is that fully fulfilled 70 years later? No. It's more fulfilled in 1948, and it'll be completely fulfilled in the Millennial Kingdom, right? Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and all your idols. You know, when God cleanses us, he does it well. 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us all our sins and to cleanse us, what? From all unrighteousness. You get that? God cleanses us from all unrighteousness, regardless of how hard we try, regardless of how many hoops we jump through. It's got nothing to do with any of that. It has to do with God cleanses us. He goes further. Verse 26, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them. Now, I'm fully aware. You've heard me say this before. Church like this, people come from different backgrounds. Some people are more God's sovereignty minded. Some people are more man's responsibility minded, right? Our job is to recognize both are real, right? Am I fully responsible for my decisions and my actions? Yes. Does Galatians tell me that whatever man sows, he's going to reap? If he sows to the flesh, he'll reap corruption. If he sows to the spirit, he'll reap everlasting life? Yes. yes. That's, for, that's for me, right? Is God's sovereignty real, right? Is God the one that saves us, or do I save myself? No. When God washes us, does He do the washing, or do I do the washing? He does the washing. And so, to be fair, when we read chapter, I think, 33, when we read about the watchman, that was a very man's responsibility chapter. So much so that you could read that. If you read that in a vacuum, you'd say, wow, I'm like got to watch what I can do. I might lose favor with God, Right? And yet that's why we teach the whole Bible, because this is a very sovereignty verse, right? It's, it's very true. It's very real. And for us as Christians, we should take comfort in this, right? Check this out. This is what he says to us as believers. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. Specifically, to be fair, he says this to the Jewish people, but it applies to us, okay? I will put a new I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them. That is a beautiful description of God's sovereignty. And we shouldn't hide from it. We shouldn't try to explain it away. It is what it is and it's a beautiful thing. 
there will be a future great revival among the Jews during the tribulation period, right? This speaks really, in a lot of ways, to the new covenant, and it'll be fulfilled again more completely along the way uh, to the Jewish people into the millennial kingdom. But for us, note that God is the one that gives us a new heart. God is the one who gives us his Holy Spirit. So much so that I'm convinced, I'm convinced that without the Spirit of God indwelling in me, I would have no chance. I know my flesh. I would have no chance of faithfully following the Lord. I was talking to a guy a couple weeks ago. Um, and again, I recognize we all come from different backgrounds, and, and that's, that's great, and I want to celebrate that. Um, quiz, if you've heard me say this before, don't answer. I never repeat myself, so you probably won't. There's one chapter in the Bible that the word spirit capitalized, is mentioned more times. Well, I'll give you the answer. Anybody know the answer? Romans 8. In Romans 8, the word spirit, capitalized, is mentioned more times than the entire book of Acts. Now, when we think of Holy Spirit, we think book of Acts, right? I mean, Holy Spirit's moving, stuff is going on, the church is exploding, people are speaking in tongues, they're healing people. That's Holy Spirit stuff. And it is. But it's interesting to me that in Romans chapter 8, we see the Holy Spirit referenced more times than in the entire book of Acts. Don't lose that. And here's what else I love about that. And to me, the day that I journeyed through this, it was like so refreshing. I told you we give you multifaceted educational opportunities, right? Not to exclude mathematics. Romans 8 comes after which chapter? Anybody? Romans 7. That is awesome. That is complex math. Romans 8, and I knew it was going to be him. Romans 8 follows Romans 7. What is Romans 7 all about? Well, and some of you may know this, that's that whole thing where Paul gets, Paul goes into poetry, it seems like. Yeah, I want to do the things I don't do, and I don't do the things I want to do, and I wish I could do the things that I wish I wanted to do, but I, I find myself not doing the things I really want to do, and I, I feel like every time I get a New Year's resolution, it's gone by February the 1st. That's Romans 7. And it's culminated in the, in, at the end. He says, oh, who can rescue me from this wretched state that I'm in, basically? What's the answer to that? Romans 8. What's Romans 8 all about? The Holy Spirit. Do we save ourselves? Do we put our pant legs on one, one leg at a time ourselves? Barely. Spiritually? Not at all. That's God's sovereignty, and we should rejoice in it. He says, I'm going to give you a new heart. I'm going to give you a new spirit. Not like the old one, the one of stone, right? Honestly, we're all familiar with our heart of stone, aren't we? Right? We know what that feels like. 
God's like, I'm going to give you a new heart. I'm going to fill you with my Holy Spirit. Then, verse 28, you shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers. You shall be my people and I will be your God. Again, specifically to the Jewish people. I will deliver you from all their, your uncleanness. I will call for the grain and multiply it and, my, and bring, my, bring no famine upon you. And I will multiply the fruit of your trees and the increase of your fields. Again, specifically fulfilled even by now, more so yet future. I will multiply the fruit of your trees and the increase of your fields so that you need never again bear the reproach or fam of famine among the nations. Then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good, and you will loathe yourselves in your own sight for your iniquities and your abominations. Not for your sake do I do this, says the Lord God. Let it be known to you. Be ashamed and confounded for your own ways, O house of Israel. Here's the, here's the order of things. God takes away our heart of stone gives us a soft heart. God fills us with his Holy Spirit. As he does this, what did, what did Jesus tell us one of the things the Holy Spirit was going to do? He's going to, he was going to convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment, right? So God's Spirit fills us, right? And Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, but I will tell you this, the Holy Spirit reminds me who I once was. The Holy Spirit, without condemnation, amazing, only God can do that. Without condemnation, the Holy Spirit reminds me, oh yeah, I was a mess. I was a mess. I would still be a mess if it weren't for the Holy Spirit. I would still be a mess if it wasn't for the grace of God. And so, then, you'll remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good. And you'll be reminded of that you'll continue to repent. You'll continue to cry out for uh, the Holy Spirit. You'll continue to cry out for God to fill us. And that's the Christian walk. Thus says the Lord, verse 23. I'm sorry, 33. On the day that I cleanse you from all your iniquities, and I will, I will also enable you to dwell in the cities, and the ruins shall be rebuilt, the desolate land shall be tilled instead of lying desolate in the sight of all who pass by. So they will say, this land that was desolate has become what? like the Garden of Eden. That's the, that's the Millennial Kingdom. And the wasted, desolate, and ruined cities are now fortified and inhabited. Then the nations which are left all around you shall know that I, the Lord, have rebuilt the ruined places and planted what was desolate. I, the Lord, have spoken, and I will do it. So lots of references to Millennial Kingdom that sound like the Garden of Eden. And all the world will know that God is God, and He will be honored accordingly. Thus says the Lord, verse 37, Blessed says the Lord God, I will also let the house of Israel inquire of me to do this for them. I will increase their men like a flock, like a flock offered as holy sacrifices, like, a, like the flock at Jerusalem on its feast days. So, will the, so shall the ruined cities be filled with flocks of men. Then they shall know that I am the Lord. Interestingly, we've read so many times in the book of Ezekiel, then they shall know that I am the Lord. Usually, it, it's been in the context of judgment, right? When Babylon comes, and I said Babylon was going to come, then you shall know that I am the Lord. And now we see this shift in chapter 36. There's going to be future blessing that's unimaginable. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. And us, as believers in 2022, we get to live in that, right? We get to live in the abundant life that Jesus offers us. And it's a beautiful picture, and that testifies to the goodness of the Lord. So, 
God has a wonderful, sovereign, prophetic plan. Right? Pharaoh's not going to mess it up. Haman's not going to mess it up. Hitler's not going to mess it up. Whoever you want to say that's in modern context today is not going to mess it up. The Antichrist is not going to mess it up. Right? God's got a plan. God is sovereign. That plan is going to be carried out. Set your clock by it. It all starts with the promises to the Jewish people because the Messiah comes from them. God describes that in Genesis chapter 24, he says in you, or just, I'm sorry, Genesis 12, he tells Abraham, in you all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Basically, in you the Messiah is going to come to bring salvation to the world. And we, carry, we see that carried out all the way through, through Revelation. For us, and this is important to know, for us, those of us who aren't genetically Jewish, right? We've been adopted into that family, right? Yeah. And it's important that we know this. I think it's important that we know a couple of things, just and I, uh, as we wrap up. It's important that we know a couple of things. Number one, those promises God made to Abraham in chapter 12 weren't conditional and they weren't temporary. God said, I'm going to do this. And guess what? He's going to do this. Even if we, in our, wherever we are on the timeline, even if we find ourselves feeling like those things have yet to be fully completed or fulfilled, God is God. God's promises aren't temporary. God's promises aren't, yeah, but what I really meant was this. God's promises don't need to be fixed according to our perceptions. There's, um, I want to be a little bit careful about this because, again, I know we all come from different backgrounds. And so you may have heard this at some point in time. There's, there's a, a bit of a mindset sometimes that says, well, the Jewish people basically failed. They had their chance. And so God has uh, sort of cast them aside and has replaced them with the church. And so all these promises that we see to the nation of Israel are really promises to the church. That'd be us, right? Paul says this, Romans 11. I say then, has God cast away his people, meaning the Jewish people? What does Paul say? Certainly not. Certainly not. For I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. Paul says God's not finished with the Jewish people. God's, God's prophetic plan comes very directly through the Jewish people, right? Because Jesus was Jewish. And yet, that doesn't exclude us, right? Romans 11 goes on to say we've been grafted in like a, like a tree that gets grafted in, right? We've been adopted into that family. So we get all the blessings, and yet there's a very literal, again, we interpret scripture prophecy as literally as possible, all these prophecies to the Jewish people, God doesn't throw them aside, right? Now, as a Christian today, even a non-Jewish Christian today, I like that, right? Because there's a lot of promises God makes to me as a Christian, right? And I know that I can stand on them. I know that God is God. I know that He is in control. I know that when he says what he's going to do, 
He's going to do it. I know that when he says in this world, you'll have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. I know that he's going to. And so I know that he didn't throw away his promises to Abraham. And my theology doesn't make him throw away his promises to Abraham. And so I know he's not going to throw away his promises to me. And I take tremendous comfort in that. Paul, to the Thessalonians, when he's speaking about prophetic things, always says what? Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Right? So we've been adopted into the family as followers of Jesus. We get to honor the Jewish people, just as God does. But we also appreciate that we're included. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you that you're so in control. That nobody in all of history has thwarted your plans. And we know that nobody ever will. And so we're thankful for that, Lord. And we're thankful that we are so privileged to be a part of your plan. Lord, help us to live accordingly. Help us to live in ways that bring honor to you, that bring glory to you, that affirm your name, that we could say, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Lord, thanks that you are so good. Thanks that you love us. Help us to live accordingly. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Have an awesome, awesome week.